I would say, grab that ticket and run, <laughs> run faster. My younger self did not know this avenue that, yeah. that that golden ticket could take me on or that my skills in culinary could take me to. You know, like looking back, I thought, well, we go to school and we're gonna be chefs and we're gonna run restaurants and that, that we're gonna feed people. I didn't know that this could be a jump off platform. I can live my mantra of nourishing people through hearts, minds, and stomachs. That golden ticket, though, at the time, I didn't know how, how shiny and gold it was. I thought, wow, this is the next step. Welcome to CEO School. We're your hosts, Sanira Madani and Shannon Monson. And we believe that you deserve to have it all. Less than 2% of female founders ever break 1 million in revenue. And we're on a mission to change that. Each week, you'll learn from incredible mentors who have made it to the 2% Club, as well as women well on their way, sharing how they've defied the odds so that you can do it too. You're a real business now. Class is officially in session. This episode is sponsored by The Club, a quarterly box and digital monthly community to help you level up in leadership and life. Learn more today at join.theceoschool.co slash the club. Hi, everyone, and good morning. I'm so excited for today's episode. This is Sanira Madani here with CEO School, and I'm so excited to welcome um, our guest for today, Emily Ellen. Emily is a TV chef, and she has been on every major show on Food TV Network, and she's just an incredible entrepreneur who um, I'm so excited to interview today and share her story. Um, and on top of just not only being an incredible entrepreneur and a, uh, a celebrity chef, she is also a mother. And I don't know how she juggles it all. And I'm so excited to welcome our guest, Emily. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you. Ay, 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 ay. I feel like there should be confetti with that entrance. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. You deserve it. You deserve it. Um, so for the audience to know, Emily actually happens to be my neighbor. Yes, we're waving across the street from each other. She's in quarantine, so I'm blowing her kisses. We are, and I'm, I we met because I we I ended up moving to a new neighborhood this year, and Emily was just such a gracious neighbor, welcoming us in a neighborhood that we had no friends in, and of course with all of her yummy, yummy, yummy goodies that she was that was bringing over, and I'm like why is her food so good? And then we realized, why have I, I've seen her. I've seen you before, Emily, where have I seen you? And uh, she's like, ah, I kind of won cupcake wars. <laughs> yes. But we did have a mutual friend and we did, we did identify that we had cross paths in the, in the past. And we both like swore a friendship for life. And, um, here we are now here I'm celebrating are. CEO school. I've, I feel like as an entertainer and my husband's an entertainer as well, that you have to, you have to buy the album or you have to like buy the book here, hear your friends. And I, um, as soon as you were telling me about CEO school, I quickly downloaded the podcast and have been following along and I've listened to all the gals and I've been following them and I think it's great. I'm like in love with it. And I'm, I'm such a champion and I'm, I'm so humbled to be a part of this, this awesome girl group. So thank you for having me. No, you're so welcome and so deserving to be here. I'm so excited um, to get to know your story a little bit and share the behind the scenes of what it actually takes to be a successful 
um, not only an entrepreneur, you've done so many different things. You're an influencer online. You've written books, you've written cookbooks, you have been on every TV show ever. You know, it seems like it's a really great success story, but I'm positive that it wasn't all, uh, all roses along the way. And so something that, you know, would love to just kind of get started is your journey. I'd love to kind of hear about how you started um, as a chef. And did you know from the beginning that you were going to um, be a chef and where did that, how did that journey get you to where you are? There was a, there was a lot to unpack in that question. (laughs) There was commas and semicolons. Um, Yes. I always wanted to be a chef. I, I joked that I walked out of my mom and I was like, come on, I got to start cooking. And I, I did cook at a very young age. I was very interested in it. My parents, well, I grew up on a a small farm and my dad came from a whole line of, of gardeners and growers and, um, Irish immigrants that had, they were basically planting all along Cleveland and we had the, the tomato crops and the asparagus crops. But, you know, as my grandfather was selling seeds and he was going door to door and helping farmers and had his own farm stand, my dad said, there's not really a lot of money or success in this. We should plant trees. And my grandfather's like, well, there's not a lot of return at, on that. And he goes, yes, and I'm going to start planting trees. And my dad planted my my grandfather's entire yard full of Christmas trees. Long story short, we were the first in the area to have a Christmas tree farm. And it was very successful. And I know we talked about this because it was just Christmas and we both have fake Christmas trees, which sounds like an oxymoron from, you know, from someone who came from a Christmas tree farm. But I guess we'll get into sustainability later. But it takes a year for like a, a white pine to grow a foot. And it took a lot of time for the other farmers to catch on that this was a viable business. So we had many successful years until it wasn't successful and the market got saturated. But I learned a lot. I love being in the work. And I think it it started at a very young age all of us working together. That's how my family showed love. So we would plant Christmas trees. We plant gardens. We had this farm. We had chickens, what have you. You know, now we still have chickens. The girls come over and feed the chickens. That like growing up on a farm, I saw how you could grow things and you could, um, you could really sustain, sustain this life or life in general. There was something wonderful that came from that food. <laughs> And really yummy, good food, right? There's nothing better than a sun-ripened tomato right out of the garden. And um, so at a very young age, yes, I knew I wanted to cook because I wanted to take this gorgeous food and transform it into even more deliciousness. And in doing so, I saw also that magic, that spirituality of gathering people around the table. And in that act of gathering people around the table and breaking bread with them, man, could you not only feed the stomach, but you were feeding souls and you were growing conversations and you were exploring divisive and, and, or just the day to day and like having a spiritual unload as well. And there's something very magical about that. And it, and it struck me at a very young age. And I always wanted to reproduce that and be able to give that. So I've lived from that from that space. And my mantra has always been to feed and nourish people in their hearts, minds, and stomachs. So I, that's how I live. That's how I, 
I resonate. I guess that's how I level up. You know, this is the more I can do that. That's my leveling up. The more that I can resonate in that space, the more I can work with people who also have that same mantra. How great is that? No, you really do um, walk the walk. You really do walk the walk. And I truly mean that. So tell me back on your journey. So you just fast forward. Your whole life, you're like, you're hardworking. You grew up on a farm. You understood sustainability. Um, you understood hard work, like working on a farm. I can, I didn't work on a farm, but we worked in small businesses and convenience stores. Like it's a different work, but working with your family is definitely a value that that's my MBA that no one can take away. Like that was like the, the greatest work experience of my life. So you decide at an early age that you just love food, love the feeling. And then when did you decide to go to culinary school or did you, or how did that happen? I always knew I was going to cook. And like I said, from very young young age, I was cooking at a very young age, you know, like when other kids were turning on the cartoons in the morning and I am an early riser, as you know, from Quentin and I were up at five (laughs) o'clock, but I was cooking breakfast for my, my family to their dismay because I was you know, a child pushing a chair to an open flame, (laughs) you know, there's, there's some things in there that may scare the shit out of you as a parent, but fast forward, I, at the age of 12, I overheard the adults talking. I, I remember this, like it was yesterday. They were talking about one of my aunts and how she went to the school called the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. And that is what launched her career and made her very successful. That just rang in my head. I didn't know how I was going to get there. I didn't know how much it cost. I didn't know where Hyde Park, New York was, but I was destined to go. And, and where, I where did you go? always said I would. And you did. And you didn't. And where, where did you grow up? Like, was that something like, was, was that really out of reach for you? Or was that something that was normal in your family? I mean, normal in my family to the degree, okay, well, I grew up in rural Northeastern Ohio, about an hour away from Cleveland, and far reaching in the sense that, yes, it's pretty depressed area. It's a bedroom community, but there are a lot of farmers and yeah, it it could have been a problem, but my family being entrepreneurs, my dad was in construction. My mom uh, helped him grow his construction business to great heights. My mom's now um, said, screw that. I'm not living someone else's dream. She is a a famous artist. She's the mother of yarn bombing. And she goes around, Carol Hummel is her name. You should check her out. I mean, give my mom a plug, right? She's she's my (laughs) biggest influence. Anyways, I digress. So I get to the Culinary Institute. Now, from a chef perspective, this is where um, I... This is my, I guess, best lesson that I learned in life. My entrepreneurial lesson is to really go with God, you know, like be very open, uh, go with your gut, go what resonates with you, right? Your gut tells you so much. Um, So here I go to culinary school. I do the associates program. We learn how to cook and um, run great restaurants. But then I also go into the bachelor's program. Along the way, all these professors kept saying, yes, you are a great cook, but you are going to do a disservice to the industry by just cooking. You need to be in the front of the house. You need to be teaching and you you have a gift to be able to share. You need to use this teaching skill as well. Pursue that. And that started resonating in my head. 
I stayed on and I did a big teaching assistantship at the Culinary Institute. From there, opportunities started opening. Like, I didn't know that. I just thought, oh, you're supposed to, you know, like to be a chef, you're going to work in a great restaurant, blah, blah, blah. You don't know all these avenues until, you know, until you see them or someone introduces them to you. So I continued my studies. I went to, I went to France and I got my first master's degree at the Academy of International Demolishment in Paris. And that was a great experience. And so French. It sounds so très French, you know, oh la la. (laughs) I can't speak a lick of French, (laughs) but I learned, you know, I learned some great things along the way. I had a great experience. And then because, well, the Olympics was happening. And it's so funny, like when things are supposed to go in a different direction and you just have like, have this complete idea and then something from the divine says, no, and reschedules. <laughs> it's just like press the reset button. So here there is the Olympics, Paris and London are vying for the Olympics. And I'm thinking to myself, oh gosh, please, England, get it because I can speak English really good. You know, like I, I can get a hospitality job. The jobs are going to flood in. I started applying in France and, and London. Everybody in the EU had that idea. So the market got totally saturated. I started getting a little frustrated. I had um, some great friends that I graduated from the culinary with, actually the owners of Rustique down the road. And um, they were here in Orlando and they said, here's the Mecca of, of hospitality and culinary. It's right here. And there's a culinary school down the road. You can get your doctorates. So I came, I applied. I also applied to uh, the Rosen College of Hospitality. Fast forward, I go back to Paris. For my birthday, I said, screw this. this something's not happening here. I need to get back to the States. I need to reset. I'm going to tell you, this is great. We, My mom picks me up from the airport. And you know how you put your hand out the window to get the mail. She said, Emmy, get the mail. I pull it the mail and it's in my lap. So I'm just kind of flipping through it. And there was a letter addressed to me and it's an acceptance letter to the University of Central Florida's Rosen School. Wow. I got back. So I got back to the States that day and here on my lap is my next ticket. I go, I moved to Florida very quickly. I'm here in Orlando. I do the master's program, all the PhD studies here at the Rosen College. I get to teach I get to explore another avenue is teaching my avenue. Yes, teaching is a, a great avenue. I had so much fun with it. But there was kind of a component missing, I think. And when I was supposed to be finishing my PhD studies, a friend from when I was teaching at the Culinary Institute calls me, a student friend, and he goes, I am starting, I want to franchise a business. I have a very successful donut company in Atlanta, Georgia. And for all of you in the Atlanta area, Sublime Donuts, you probably all know it well. It's delicious. Kamal Grant's the owner. Anyways, he goes, I want to franchise a business. And I said, you need a franchise lawyer, not a friend. (laughs) And then he goes, but I want to franchise it in Thailand. And I said, oh, you called the right friend. Let me figure it out. I, what a cool challenge. Let me do it. I don't know. It was, it was so interesting to me. So together we worked and figured it out. And as a thank you, he, at the time, Alton Brown in, Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia area, he's, his studio is a mile down the road. How kismet, you know, like he's coming in, he knows our donuts, whatever. And Kamal's kind of, he's a reader. He's always watching the news and stuff. And he sees that there's these open casting calls, unbeknownst to me. 
And I come in one day, it's like four o'clock in the morning, time to make the donuts. And all these guys in their, their culinary whites, you know, these big guys making the donuts. And they all have Cheshire cat grins on as big as could be. And I go, what's wrong with you? You need coffee? You know, you want me to make breakfast? What? What's up guys? What? Uh, uh. And they go, you're going to Washington DC. And I'm like, what? If I have to go to Washington DC, I'm a terrible driver, by the way. And second of all, the donuts will never make it there. <laughs> you know, like what? And they go, no, you're going to Washington DC. Here's a plane ticket. Here's your application. There's a casting call for a next Food Network star in Washington DC tomorrow. They didn't even give me a chance. They didn't want me to back out. They made me sit there and fill out that application. I quickly went and bought a new outfit. I got all zhuzhed up. I got on the plane. It was like another like magic, you know, like when everything flows, that's right now. Like for those that are not watching the episode, I'm like, I'm just like in my screen, like the story is so <laughs> I know it's like a nail biter, right? And, and this is how I was feeling. Second to be like, I didn't even know that you can get that many degrees in food, but you are, <laughs> you are, oh, you're more educated than anybody that I know. And in the other, there's no reason that you need all that. You can, you can just cook with your mom and you'll know a hell of a lot more. Okay. I had to, you know, I got a little scattered there. The PhD focus to back up is in education with a focus in hospitality. There's a lot of kind of like odd overlaps, but it all helps in the long run. So, okay, so you get this ticket and you're like, you have to be there tomorrow. With yes, I have the golden ticket. I'm going to Willy Wonka's. Paint the scene for me. Who's with you in Atlanta? Are you by, like, what's happening in your life? Um, are you just like- My life is, Kamal and I are growing this franchise opportunity. We're talking, people are flying in from Thailand. We're, we're meeting this, this young entrepreneur in Thailand who wants to reproduce the sublime donut. So we're like working through it and I'm reading on, uh, you know, like I'm putting together these operations plans a lot of my PhD like papers that are written are all in operation. So I too like really enjoy that. So um, there's that aspect going, then Kamal's running a very successful operation and I'm just in it, helping him to see what, where it will go from there. I'm, I have focus on writing a, a donut book. I, you know, like I'm thinking about all these different things. There's lots going on. So uh, when this happens and I go, oh, oh, so I get on the plane. This is where it's like really odd. And I, I remember it like very clear as day. I remember getting off the plane, walking through the airport, getting into a cab. The cab driver's name was Henry. And he's like, why are you visiting? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to this casting call. I don't know. It says we're going to this, this hotel, blah, blah, blah. I don't know anything. I just have this application in my hand. He's like, Oh my gosh, great luck. You know, good luck. He pulls up. I walk right in and there's a sign that says casting call. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, maybe I should go to the bathroom. You know, like, let me get rid. And I walk down. I'm like the first one there. They hand me this, this thing to read through and sign my life away. By the time I read through everything and was writing my name, they call my name. Okay, because at that time, well, it was like starting to get in my head at that point, and I'm signing my name, and I'm like, "Oh my God, is this like the voice? Should I write a book? Like, how long am I going to be here? Oh my gosh, my plane! I, I leave at three o'clock. <laughs> you know, I just got there. It's ten, and 
maybe I don't have time. Oh my, you know, maybe I should get a hotel room. I'm starting to get like myself worked up and they call my name and I'll be damned. The first thing they looked at me and they said, can you come back tomorrow? And I'm like, well, of course, <laughs> of course I can fly back to Atlanta and fly back to Washington. <laughs> oh, that's what I do. Um, and they, yeah, of course, yeah, I had this plan. Um, maybe I'll bring a book tomorrow. Um, but anyways, they said, bring a dish, a completed dish and be prepared to present a cooking demo. And I'm like, I walked around Washington DC and just kind of like, um, soaked it in and thought of some ideas. And here we are in Thailand, Thailand mode. Right. And so I made a Thai iced teeny. I could, I took, a a, yeah, I kept, cause we were trying to figure out well, like, what is really the magic of the Thai iced tea? And everybody's always like, oh, you get this packet and then you put condensed milk and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, but what's in the packet? What's the tea? What's the, you know? And so that was my great like brain going on and on and on about that. But I took a uh, whipped cream ISI whipper and I put the vodka in it and cocoa nibs. Now this is years ago. I don't, this was in 2012. I, I take the cocoa nibs and vanilla and flavors that I thought had the Thai iced tea had tea cranked it up and instantly infused the vodka with those flavors, shook it up, added cream, did this whole presentation. The crowd behind the camera went wild. I'm like, okay, I'm onto something. You know, I, I had put together this dish that was all cold components. I put it together in the hotel bathroom, you know, like public bathroom, trying to make it look beautiful. <laughs> yeah. um, but here it's the kicker. So the, you know, it's all flowing. Everything's just flowing. We get back, I get back to Atlanta and the next call is at Alton Brown studio a mile down the road, the first filming when we get chosen. And so it's like all like really close. And then it, and then next to a network star happened. It was the one and only year. It was season eight. All my seasons are funny enough. They're all like season eight. I don't know. It's pretty lucky number. Um, but the, so it was one and only year it was teams. And then it was kind of that like starting at that time where Survivor started having like Redemption Island and everything. So they started, you know, like teasing the audience on social media, like, who do you want to come back? And I got like thousands and thousands of people when I actually got kicked off. We had such a strong team. All, all my teammates were like powerhouses. And two in the top, the top uh, three. Anyways, I had all these people voting me back on. I was like the most popular to get back on as fan favorite. And lo and behold, they were filming a Cupcake Wars fan favorite. And Hollis Wilder, who's here in Orlando, she had already won Cupcake Wars two times and she was going for a third win and we partnered up and I got to be on Cupcake Wars. And it was like all these like cool connections and it was it was kind of neat because they were doing all these competition shows at the time that's when it started now i'm like oh god guys like come on we need some fresh ideas but at that time it was really a, a neat new concept right and you know because you loved watching them i love watching yeah. <laughs> i've watched every single one of those tv shows that you've been on on every single season eight <laughs> so yeah, yeah. 
So you go back and you win, you end up winning Cupcake Wars. You lost during the process. Yeah. And how did you feel when the audience like voted you back in? So you were a fan favorite from a TV perspective because your personality, you are a TV personality. Were you like, do I go back or do I just call it in? Do I throw in the towel? Like, how do you get your mindset ready from nationally going on television, like pursuing your dream and then not making it? right? Like let's like, not making it to the, to the finale. And then you're like, you come back, what's happening in your mind. And then how do you get the courage to be like, I'm going to go back? Well, I was so green and I, so I didn't know any other way, <laughs> you know, I just, I didn't know a lot about like being on television. I, I, I knew like going into the show, how, how do I prepare? Well, I'm a chef first and foremost. So I just kind of like reread all my culinary stuff. I didn't know. I didn't know that I should be practicing like camera delivery. And, um, so I was green in the sense that I was very naive in the process, but I was very fortunate because all the producers were very supportive of me. And I, as you learn very quickly in television, people aren't going out of their way to give you compliments. So when I got, I got quite a bit of compliments. So I felt as though I was onto something and I should keep on this road. So I continued to do it. I was asked very quickly to be a part of um, helping brands, support brands as a brand ambassador. I was asked to, to develop recipes and my, my business kind of like organically grew from the attention that I was getting on these television shows. And then in the competition mindset, you know, the, the cupcake worth thing happened like very quickly afterwards. So there wasn't any thinking when I was asked to be then on like cutthroat kitchen, which I won as well. I was like, <laughs> I mean, to put it out there cutthroat kitchen as well. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, but I, I, I was kind of like every year there was a new opportunity happening that was just from on Food Network, but there's other things happening like on the surface that was helping to grow it. And then like being on Camp Cutthroat, some of these spinoff shows, finally it was organically just happening that I was becoming the, becoming a judge, recognized not only as like this competitor, but also an expert. I mean, with the education and things like that and the experience, it was happening. And I was learning along the way, all these little tidbits. Now, you know, when you're in it and it's very myopic, you don't think of like all the other noise that's happening. So there wasn't a lot of fear. There wasn't a lot of hesitation. I was just going. You are just going. I was just going and I continue to go. I have so many questions for you. So it's amazing. I mean, you really did. You took your, that little girl that was listening to her aunt being at the culinary Institute. You literally put in the time to go get educated. So you were like, I'm not winging this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it in the best possible way. And you got every degree from every institute that would validate. Uh, and sometimes, honestly, that's a, a girl thing that we need that validation. Like we, we, yeah. uh, like it's, it's also part of our, our psyche of like, here's the checklist of where I need to be at. You go and you check off every single thing and you kind of just go with your gut. You go with your gut to these crazy Always. opportunities. You're like, okay, I like this. I'm going to run with this. I like this. I'm going to run with this. And that's kind of how the doors unfolded for you. Um, and then you have your big TV debut it, what goes amazing. Everybody loves the, the, the chef personality that you're bringing. You don't end up winning. You get voted back in. 
you find the resilience to come back in, win the thing, win another show, win another show, and just continue to show up and now becoming like an expert in the field and now judging these competitions. Like yeah. when you zoom out and you take a look at that, like what, what would you have told yourself? Like that day when those chefs were handing you that golden ticket, as you described it, if you could go back and tell yourself one thing, what would you go back and tell yourself? I would say, grab that ticket and run, <laughs> run faster. Run faster. I, I would say run faster. My younger self did not know this avenue that, yeah. that that golden ticket could take me on or that my skills in culinary could take me to. I really, you know, like looking back on my 12 year old self who went to school, I thought, well, we go to school and we're going to be chefs and we're going to run restaurants and that, that we're going to feed people. I didn't know that this could be a jump off platform to gather large groups, social media groups. I can sing my song to the world, help the world. I can live my mantra of nourishing people through hearts, minds, and stomachs. Yes, I, I entertain, I teach, I feed, I can do it. So that, that golden ticket, though, I, you know, at the time, I didn't know how, how shiny and gold it was. I thought, wow, this is the next step. I think it's so amazing because so many women at that moment might not have pivoted, right? So at that moment, I mean, you took that risk. And I think that's usually a story and a, and a thread line. And every single one of the interviews that I do, there's always that moment of risk that you take and you're just leaving something behind or going for an opportunity. And some people just naturally have it to be risk takers. I naturally wasn't one of those people. I was like, oh, I'm going to go do it. I was like literally pushed when there was no other choice. I was the last person to like take a bet on myself. And it's so amazing to see um, you know, to hear that part of even just that there is always that moment of risk in any success that you have to be able to willing to take that risk to go get what you want, even if you don't know what's on the other side. And I think that's yeah. a huge thread in, in successful entrepreneurs. And the risk even further at that time, I really should be in Orlando at that point, finishing my PhD. I was doing my comprehensive exams and I was so close to just finishing the PhD and actually getting those letters behind my name. And for some reason, finishing or, or rather uh, growing a franchise in Thailand and, and then pursuing a television career felt more right than adding that feather in my cap. No, I love it. And I want to kind of fast forward us. I mean, you know, so TV happened and you're still continuously doing different things. Mm -hmm. um, and now you're just like, you're recognized and you talked about it. Now social media has also become your stage. So even when there isn't a TV show being produced, you have such a big footprint online to reach your, on your blog and on your Instagram. And it's so amazing that you share that. Something that you mentioned that you didn't know, you didn't know that there even this career existed. That's something that we as women, um, we don't get to see. We don't get to see the successes of other women in different avenues. And that's a huge part of why we created CEO School, a huge part of why we bring so many interesting women on the show. I never saw a tech company CEOs like that were women and young and mothers. Like that was just never, I just saw old white men in CEO positions. Right. And to be frank, how sexy is, um, you know, merchant services or how <laughs> sexy really is super sexy. working. Yeah. Super sexy super now sexy. that we're, we're here, but you know, like me too, all I saw were these old white men. And I, I joke, I was the, I was one of the keynote speakers to the 
American Culinary Federation. And I said, it, it took me a long time to join this organization because when I was in school, I was 18, 19 years old, and I was looking out and I did not resonate with six-year-old white men buttoned up in chef's coats. No, I wanted cat-eyed glasses and I wanted to be, you know, wild and, and do my own thing. And even though I had the, the skills, I wanted to, to be free in my recipe framework. No, it's so true. And it's so important. And this is why we show up. And this is why every one of you guys listening, it's kind of become our duty to share our careers, all our goals, be working professionals, go for bigger and greater, and also not, not just do it, but share it so that we can inspire the next generation of Emily's and Sinera's and, and Mila's, right? To see that there are women doing really unique things that we never thought besides being a teacher or a nurse or whatever else that we're supposed to be. And even in industries, and this is what is so crazy to me, even in an industry like yours, which is a culinary cuisine, a culinary industry, which should be dominated by women, right? Because uh, air quotes, that's our place in the kitchen, right? Or like our place, the woman's place is in the kitchen. It's still dominated by men. Explain this to me, please. Why is the culinary industry also dominated by men? And I would love to hear stories of how you maybe broke through some of that because even as a, a successful charismatic woman, I'm sure there were challenges when you're wearing the white coat compared to the guys wearing the white coat. Oh yeah, I mean, well, I, I should back up and remind everyone that my my father and mother had a construction company. So I grew up in surrounded by guys working. And I was one of those guys essentially working. Like I didn't, I knew obviously that here I am surrounded by a very male dominated industry, no matter what. I worked regardless. I had to, in a sense, work harder, I felt, to like keep up and show and prove. Tell me about that though, right? Cause I hear, I've heard that, right? I've heard that, that it's tougher for like women don't end up becoming head chef. Why is that in the industry? Like um, what what's taking place there? Well, I think the tide is churning on that very quickly. Um, but I think at first, I, I mean, I can only speak from my own experiences. Actually, I can give you an example of something that was ingrained in us when I studied in Paris, right? When I went to learn how to apply for jobs, that was one of our, our classes is like the front of the house and learning business sense, right? And it was instilled in us in France, mind you, that you were to be very clear as a woman and tell your bosses that you had no intention of having children or getting married and that you were a professional career woman. Now, I am not from the 1950s, even though I would like to be in my cat-eyed beauty, right? But this was still being taught in the 2000s. Now- In your PH, in your master's of- Master's of quality management. Yes. And the, how to apply for a job. So I am just saying from my perspective, I think that in the culinary world, in the kitchens, you know, you're working very hard hours. You're on your feet nonstop. You're getting there. You're sweating through the night. You're not getting off until three o'clock in the morning when the only thing open is bars and tech parlors, right? That's not really a place that anyone who wants a family life, woman or man, or a successful marriage is going to be. 
so if you want any semblance of a, a peaceful, loving home life in the future, then run. Yeah, you weren't going to pursue that executive chef position, maybe for a little bit, or maybe run your own house and then hire an executive chef. Um, but I think that was what really kept us, I guess, in our own kitchen, barefoot and pregnant. But that is changing completely. Definitely with knowing that we are like the main breadwinners, right? I, we have that mentality. I always, I, I shared with you, I would watch, I watched my mom. She, she raised two girls and helped raise up my father's business and took it from, you know, something that was good to great and very successful. Um, and I always thought, man, we have to do it all. You know, if we're going to make it, we got to do it all. And yeah. I, I hear that in a lot of the podcasts that yeah. you kind of have to get through that. Like your partner can be your partner. You know, and I really did want to dig here on the, on the industry because it does. I know that we feel this in every industry that we're in, that we're, we're alone and we may have sponsors. We may have great backgrounds. We may have great partners, but at the end of the day, it's our mentality is what's going to shift our success forward. And in order for us to be in those positions, in order for us to be the leaders, in order for us to be the boss, we have to have that mentality that we can have it all. And it's hard. That doesn't mean having it all is easy, right? Having it all is so difficult. You became a mother this year. It was during the pandemic. You have so much going on. And now going back into the post when the world kind of picks back up and you have to travel and go on set and be gone for a season. I mean, that is like long periods of time to go shoot your seasons. Like you, like every other weekend, every weekend. Yeah. But I, I will say this, I, I, before we go too far, I think one of the greatest lessons from CEO school that people um, are learning, because I know I'm learning and listening and it's resonating with me to have it all does not mean you have to do it all. Yes. And that is one of a great lesson as a woman because here we're seeing great examples or we're seeing the opposite and what we're, what we're really striving is in our mind, like, oh, I have to do it all. No, 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 no. You have partners. That's why we're married. This is why we have partners. This is why we have family and friends and we can hire people and there's professions other than ours. Yeah. I love that. Thanks for bringing that back up and really does come full circle. Something that before our, our time, we could sit here, I can talk to you for hours, which I do all the time. Anyway, I do want to bring back this episode on something that you really taught me. So I learned so much from you about sustainability. And I've always thought that I was, I, I do well for the environment. I recycle. I try to ensure that we're not obnoxious in our lives. And we try to take our grocery back. So I do the little things and try not to have like non-toxic chemicals at home. And then I met Emily and literally her entire life is from cradle to grave. And this concept of accountable sustainability. And I really wanted for you to share with our audience a little bit about that. And what are things that we can do in our home? Because um, Emily has roosters in her backyard. She grows everything in her garden. Everything comes from her garden. Um, but it's not just about having a garden. There were so many things that I learned that I can do in my home that could really just create a better life for our future generations. I'd love to kind of talk about your um, next mission, um, which is um, accountable, uh, accountability uh, to sustainability. So I would say first and foremost, do not dismiss the incremental changes or efforts like you recycling is, is everything we need and then continue to make small changes. Now I will say there's going to be a big shift and I, I am so excited 
for the United States because we need to make the change and we need to be the change. And with the new administration, with incoming President Biden and Kamala Harris, we are going to really be focusing on that. So we have the Green New Deal and the fact that we're going to rejoin the Paris Accord you know, opinions aside of how much that's going to change, at least it's changing our mindset, right? And I think those, um, like I was saying, the incremental changes. So recycling, yes, of course, reducing and reusing and recycling are always going to be first and foremost. Now, because I come from the kitchen and that's my background, we waste the most in the kitchen. And that is from just purchasing food that's been heavily packaged. We somehow uh, bastardized our idea of cleanliness and with the plastic industries have really taught us that we need to have everything wrapped in plastic. I don't know why are we've changed that paradigm shift happened and why we're so focused on it. But one of the single most like effective things you can do is really reduce the amount of plastic because plastic is designed to never biodegrade. It's the, the super material, right? So um, yes, I, I recycle as well and I reduce and, and we compost as well as feed the chickens, but um, change your paradigm. I have five trash cans. I, I know she thinks I'm a nut every time she can't throw anything away when she comes across the street. She starts like packing in her bra, throw it, throw my straw away. <laughs> do with it. I'm like, where do I put this thing? Where do I put this thing? But yeah. So much. I will tell you, there's so many little shifts, right? So I don't yeah. ever be the person that has five garbage cans, but I will say that I have learned little things that, um, you know, I come from a family of also food lovers. My mom is also, um, she's a chef in her own, right? She's a, she's a caterer. Yeah. And, you know, using the ingredients from, you know, and I grew up eating like halal was a, a big deal. So not sacrificing the animal for the sake of just because you want to eat meat, like really being intentional about the food that you eat and cleaning yeah. and using it end to end. So I always kind of grew up with the non-food waste mentality. Uh, but, and so that's important of just utilizing your foods, but things that you've taught me. So a couple of things I want to share. So like when we make our roast chicken, which is like my favorite recipe that Emily's ever taught. So please, we're going to link in the show notes, your blog. You have to download her roast chicken recipe. We eat it every single week. My kids love it. We all love it. But after the roast chicken, we make the roast chicken, but it's not, it doesn't have to be all these specific ingredients for vegetables. It's utilizing whatever's a leftover on the bottom of the fridge of like, because it's going to cook all day. It's going to get, it's going to be delicious. And so it's like utilizing ingredients that I might've thrown away into the dish. But even after the chicken is cooked and done, uh, not throwing away the carcass, not throwing away the bones of the chicken, and then literally takes five minutes after we debone the, the meat from the roast chicken, and then throwing that into a hot pot of water with additional leftover vegetables and seasonings and just herbs, right? Just herbs and onion and garlic and whatever we have in the fridge and then creating chicken stock from it. And we freeze the chicken stock, which we then continue to reuse in all the meals. There's like little things like just taking that one extra step and things just taste better. Things just feel better. And it's not about having 90 garbage cans. I didn't know, but I didn't even know that we think, I thought I was recycling. I really thought that I do my part and I recycle. And then I learned that even the things that I'm recycling are actually not ending up in the places that need, they need to go. 
I'm getting really passionate about this because I thought I was doing my part. And then I learned that even things that I'm taking the steps to do aren't even being counted because they're not done correctly. So just taking the step to wash the container before I put it into recycle, just taking the things to separate out the cans and uh, the plastics and things like that were really useful for our family. So I wanted to share. And if you can link, I'm sure there's more stuff that's going to be coming on your page, but follow Emily. I am so excited to be on this journey because we should all be on this journey to do a better job for our environment, for our kids. So I want to share, I'm going to end this episode with a story about when Emily was over, we got pallets and pallets and pallets of material, boxes from everywhere to create the CEO school subscription box. So we had all these different products that were all overpackaged. And this is something that I am starting to see after he pointed it out that we would just overpackage everything. And Emily, would you like to share the end of it? I'd love to hear what we ended up doing and how impactful it was. We sorted and reduced and made a list for the next box. The next box, we're asking the vendors to reduce the amount of plastic. The plastic film, and this is just a good note for everyone, most of the plastic films and plastic wrappers and even bubble wrap and things like that, plastic bags, can be recycled at your local grocery store and Target. So those are made into pallets. So that is great if you can do that little part when you bring in your reusable bags, recycle the extra plastics and films. All the paper we broke down, all the boxes we broke down, all the cool, like, paper inserts we're like oh my gosh this is the most beautiful cardstock and we gave it to your the kids school yes little boxes we gave for dioramas for the school so we tried to get as much reduction of the waste and then moving forward zero waste now i will leave you with one thing okay as a mom and diapers i, I use cloth diapers because my sister used cloth diapers and now we're on the fifth kid and they're held up so I have that sustainable element already built into my life. But for those of you who aren't, I would pay the extra money to get something that is biodegradable. Now, even a fully biodegradable diaper, mine that I use temp if I ever need some on the run, I have these biodegradable bamboo diapers. They can be composted and break down in 40 days. In a garbage can, it will take 90 years to break down. A non-recyclable diaper is up to 900 years plus. Oh my God. One small change we can make just with knowing that information is getting biodegradable bags for our, our, our trash liners. So at least there's hope for some of the stuff to get broken down if we're not sorting correctly. That's the first thing you can do. And then start exploring things that work for your family, biodegradable diapers or biodegradable or less packaging. I mean, that's the one thing we can do. Hey, it's something. I, I appreciate you sharing that. And even something that I didn't think of that you really helped us do was even that extra like cardboard inserts that came in some of the packages and things like that between the pallets, between each of the planners, there was like this cardboard insert. And then your mind just was like, oh, this is so, this is a perfect little white piece of cardstock. Actually, I'm going to show you, I, I'm using one on my desk today with my sticky notes. So yeah. this was literally a, like an insert that was like on top of these, of these planners. Yeah. And we literally pulled them out individually and created a stack. There was literally hundreds of these little papers. 
boxfuls and we dropped them off to the kids' school. And now they're just like really pretty little art, like they can do art on here. So even oh. not just about recycling, but even reusing material. Um, it was just such a great lesson. I have all the videos from it. I'm going to share a little bit of our cycling journey with Miss Emily Ellen. But I did want to share on this episode some of the things that I've learned from you as your neighbor. And you are extra. You're, de- you're definitely extra, which is amazing because we need people like you. But I think that I learned that it doesn't even have to be that much and I can just make a few extra changes that's really going to go a long way in our homes and in our environment. So I appreciate that. Emily, what? I could sit here and talk to you all day. We'll definitely have you back on for a wind down Wednesday. I want to learn how to, we can maybe do a fun like cocktail recipe, maybe inside of the club. Maybe you can teach us a member led workshop on, uh, we've got really busy moms, busy working professionals and how we can do really quick meals. So I'd love to have you back in every element. Thank you so much for taking your time today to share your knowledge with our audience. Where can we find you? Where can we follow you? And how can we support you? I think the best way to find me is just go to Emily Ellen and you can spell it any different way. You know how magic the internet is emilyellen.com and it has links to all of my social media outlets. You can help me by following along. And as um, I move through my goals this year of producing some books, I would love it if you could all just pick one up or at least gift one. That would be awesome. I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> we will make that commitment. We will make that commitment. And, oh, this is how you can help me because it will help all of us. Okay. Just be more conscious. Be more conscious environmentally. How is this affecting you? If you lived cradle to cradle from birth to death and you had to have your posted stamp, stamp of space and you couldn't get rid of anything, would you have it in your, your space? Would you, how would you consume it? Would you consume it differently? We'll just keep a conscious mindset and moving forward, just love each other. I think raising each other up and, um, continuing to love and support, uh, environments like CEO school and, and just help one another thrive. I think that that's it. That's it. That's the magic to life. That is magic to life. And you really do live and breathe that every day. We can't wait to all support you when your next book launches. We will be there. We're so excited for your journey as a mother, as an entrepreneur, as a TV celebrity. Um, It's so fun watching you. And I can't wait to link everything in the show notes for all of you guys. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode at CEO School. We'll see you next week on Wind Down Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Follow us at CEO School on Instagram for show notes, inspiration, and exclusive behind the scenes that you won't find anywhere else. We also have an absolutely incredible resource for you. It's the seven lessons we learned building million dollar businesses. These are complete game changers and we want to give it to you absolutely free. All you have to do is leave a review of the podcast, why you love the show, screenshot the review, and email it to hello at ceoschoolpodcast.com and we'll send it your way.